0: Hello, and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event on Mary Midgley and Why She Matters. My name is Danielle Sands, and I'm a fellow at the Forum, and I'm going to be chairing this event. A fierce opponent of the overreach of science and a lifelong advocate of the humanities, Mary Midgley's writing ranges across animal ethics, religion, science, and the natural world. In all of these areas, she appealed to a philosophy that is humble and attentive connecting philosophical thought to lived experience. Our speakers this evening will be celebrating Midgley's life, work and legacy, and will ask what she can teach us about how to live. Let me introduce our speakers. Ellie Robson is a second year PhD candidate in philosophy at Birkbeck University of London. Her PhD thesis is a contemporary revival of Midgley's ethical naturalism, with a specific focus on the connections between Midgley and the work of Philippa Foot, Ellie has recently published a chapter in the book The Philosopher Queens, which tells the stories of the lives and legacies of 20 underappreciated female philosophers. Dr Greg McElwain is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the College of Idaho. His research focuses on the intersection between animal and environmental ethics in environmental philosophy. He is the author of Mary Midgley: An Introduction, which was published by Bloomsbury Academic in two thousand and nineteen. Dr. Panayota Vasilopoulou is Reader in Philosophy at the University of Liverpool. Her doctoral work focused on Plotinus' views of the soul, which was also the topic of Midgley's thesis. In addition to publishing on Neoplatonism and aesthetics, she has been at the forefront of work linking philosophical research to philosophical practice in the cultural industries and the health sector. Her recent work includes a co-edited volume, Thinking a Philosophical History, which is forthcoming with Routledge in 2021. I'd like to thank you all for joining us this evening. Um, The format of the event is that we'll have a discussion between the speakers and then there'll be time for audience questions. So do put your questions in the chat. So Greg, perhaps you could start things off. Um, Tell us why you think Midgley's work is important and why we should be reading it.
1: Thank you Danielle. Um, well I think we'll cover quite a few reasons um, why that's the case as we go along but just a few that I'll take a stab at uh, from the start. Um, you mentioned how wide-ranging her Midgley's work is and um, I think that part of the part of the reason for her wide-ranging emphasis is because of her her, um, position on what philosophy is and how it should be done, which is to engage a range of relevant and important topics that um, have significance for how we live. So over 40 years from especially the late 70s until uh, up to her death in 2018, she published um, 18 books, over 200 works overall on such topics as animals, human nature, um, science, the environment, uh, sex, gender, um, and so on. Um, and her contributions in each of these areas, I think, on their own are quite significant. Um, I'm thinking in particular of her position on philosophy um, and what it's for, which we'll get into. Um, and also in my area, animals and the environment um, uh, was was quite um, influential um, and ahead of its time in the early 1980s, bringing more of a relational and holistic approach to those areas. Um, and it's not only that these um, topics are engaging and relevant but also um, accessible. Um, her style is lively um, and um, fairly um, engaging. Um, I'll say that again. And in that way, um, she's not speaking to just uh, the usual philosophical crowd, but also a, wide, a wider audience of um, those interested in uh, relevant issues um, who can see kind of the importance of philosophy, not just in academia, but also in the world, um, And then I think last of all, which I uh, think Ellie in particular particular will address, um, is her prominence um, and significance um, overall of her voice as a woman in philosophy, um, which is um, gaining attention and its importance and how that's been overlooked uh, so much over the years. Um, So I think we'll have quite a bit to talk about in those areas.
0: Thanks Greg. Ali, I wonder if you want to jump in here, is there anything you think that Greg has missed that we need to get to?
2: Uh, no, I think that was a great summary from Greg. Um, I guess just a, a couple of things, to, um, that was a really good uh, broad introduction, I think um, just maybe I can say something a bit more specific about how she, like her projects and philosophy. Um, so when I kind of start reading Midgley, I think she sort of has a positive and a negative um, sort of, um, well, two positive, one positive, one negative project. Um, She's, as Greg was saying, she's really practical and really optimistic as a philosopher, which I think is really refreshing. She's really interested in like broadening and augmenting our vision of ourselves and our place in the world. So it's like a very holistic philosophy. She's really encouraging us philosophers and her readers to draw connections um, between like various bodies of knowledge um, and to create a better and a broader understanding of human beings and our place in the world. Um but for Midgley, like the world is very complicated and very muddled, and she is very happy to sit in in that complex muddle. Like she's not, she's unlike other philosophers, and she's not trying to simplify the world. In fact, she she's very against simplifying the world, and that's um her negative project. Um, but more a bit more about her positive project. She's she's very her methodology, I'd say, is like one of balance. Like she's not constantly saying to us, right, um, let's not let this sort of um damaging vision become too dominant in our thinking. Um, So, yeah, her negative project is sort of uh, resisting philosophical practices that attempt to reduce the complexity in in damaging ways. Like she's not saying don't simplify anything. She's saying when it becomes too dominant and damaging, then we need to check up our our thinking. Um, So, for example, she doesn't want us to to like reduce human motivation down to like one basic thing. Um, Like we're basically selfish, for example, has been used in the past. She's resisting like... That sort of simplification, um, yeah, so broadly she's a philosopher who definitely has her feet like firmly on the ground. Um, she's not what you call an armchair philosopher. Um, she is engaging in um, really pressing issues of our time, which I think is something really important to why she really, really matters now she's she's really going to be a, a, an important person to look out for, um, as we'll get on to I'm sure the environmental crisis, um, the way that we teach our children, what we teach our children about the environment and nature and the structures that our society are based upon. Um, Yeah, Uh, so I think she's super important um, for the messy, muddled world, as she would say. Thanks,
0: Ellie. Yoto, is there anything you want to add at this point? What what points do we need to make sure we cover in this discussion?
3: Well, I think, as, of course, Greg and Ellie already said, um, or implied, you know, her work is complex. But I think one distinctive characteristic is that she brings metaphysics and epistemology and ethics kind of all together into a synthesis. And this is also characteristic of the great philosophers in history, all the sort of past masters, if you like, um, that she herself, of course, um, admired and she called the uh, volcanic phenomena. So I think she's one of these volcanic phenomena. And I think we should read her because she's really very good
0: Thank you. And thanks for raising, I guess, this this topic of methodology and approach, which I think we're going to come back to. I mean, is this just just to come back to the point you raised about bringing together these concerns about metaphysics and ethics and epistemology? Was this unusual for thinkers writing at that time?
3: well yes i think it was i mean there were of course some exceptions like you know some philosophers like wittgenstein for example that you know were um, she admired a lot and have made an impression but i think mostly it was philosophers from um, already her past obviously you know like plato and the classic philosophers and uh, you know um hegel and nietzsche and you know that, that sort of people uh but i think that generally the academic scene that um you know, Midgley was in, uh, is not so radically different from ours now. And um I think this kind of scene within the worlds of academia is not really conducive to that kind of uh, philosophical thinking. I'm not saying of course that there aren't exceptions um to this rule, of course there are, but generally it's not is not something that encourages that sort of holistic approaches.
0: Thank you. Uh, coming back to, to you, Ellie, I mean, we seem to be witnessing increased engagement with, with Midgley's work at the moment. Um, which projects like yours demonstrate? Why
2: do you think that is? Um, well, a big reason, I think, is the fact that she died, sadly, two years ago, um, definitely since her death, um, interest in her work has um, burrowed. But the I think an, a big reason for this is in... Um, in academic philosophy the, Claire, the work of um, the in project by um Dr Claire McCall and Rachel Wiseman has been really instrumental in like bringing um public interest um and academic interest into Michele's work um so I'll tell you like a little bit about this project they're um a project set up in Durham which basically theorize um a school a philosophical school for the first time so Mitchley is part of this school and it's a school of four female philosophers um for those who aren't aware they're um uh, Philippa Foote, Iris Murdoch and Elizabeth Anscombe and the project in Durham theorizes that these women make up a philosophical school because they're studying together in Oxford during World War II um, and all the men go off to war and these four women are left um, and there's sort of a period in which these women flourish and it's been described as like a golden age in women's philosophy. Um, so I think a big reason why Midgley's work the in parentheses project really has helped to sort of um, bring Midgley into this school because sometimes the three are spoken about and is left out a lot of the reasons that we've spoken about already is that the way that she writes quite excessively, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about she has a very unusual philosophical career. Um, but definitely, this in project has been really instrumental in bringing her into the quartet, or the wartime quartet, as they've been coined.
0: And is it fair to say, do you think, that, that her work had been sort of neglected before that?
2: Yeah, definitely, especially in academic philosophy. So it's funny, because when you're reading Midgley, you're like, I'm, so I'm sitting her for my PhD, and I'll, I'll find her in very funny places like she's picked up across lots of different disciplines like ethology and animal geography and um social science quite a lot as well um but she doesn't tend to be picked up as much in academic philosophy um i think she well she definitely has been neglected um and uh yeah for many many reasons but um hopefully um the work of people like greg can help to get her more into academic philosophy
0: Thanks, Ellie. I mean, Greg, perhaps we'll come back to you then. Clearly, you spent a lot of time with, with Midgley's work and I know um, speaking with her as well. Why do you think there was this historical neglect? And do you think we're really um, beginning to make up for that now?
1: Yeah, I, think, I think Ellie's touched on the main reasons for, for the neglect. And um, I, there, there is perhaps a stigma at times of, of engaging philosophy in a public way that, Maybe that's that's fading a bit now. I mean, I think the increase of public philosophy is, is probably a good thing on the whole. Um, but as something of a kind of public intellectual, when there, there weren't many, um, she was tackling these topics in a, in a way that perhaps um, due to again that the, her unorthodox career um, maybe caused many to see her as shading toward, um, you know, away from academic philosophy. And I think she was okay with that. I think she saw herself as a bit of an outsider uh, she didn't write her first book until she was nearly sixty. Um, unlike her colleagues from the wartime quartet, um, she didn't go the normal kind of, um, you know, Oxbridge route. She, um, you know, had a family, um, reviewed books, uh, produced some radio programs, or, um, and broadcast some programs, um, and kind of just did her thing, her own thing, for a while until she decided she had some things she had to say, and she really unloaded those <laughs> when they came about. Um, But a lot of the topics that she talked about, um, I think they have been picked up in philosophy, but it depends on what type of philosophy we're talking about. Um, In my area, animals and the environment, it's not necessarily the most mainstream um, philosophical discipline environmental philosophy, I think tends to also see itself as kind of uh, on the fringe and a bit of voices in the wilderness type of approach to things. Um, But I do think she had um, a bit of an influence there on animals and the environment. And that's an area that I've been trying to draw attention to because I think she has a lot of a lot to offer there in addition to these other areas. Um, but yeah, I think Ellie covered that all pretty pretty well.
0: Thank you. And it seems as if one of the things she can teach us or one thing things she can help us to think about is the processes through which we do philosophy and the role that philosophy um, plays in our thinking more broadly and our culture more broadly. I wonder if we could Turn to you Yotta, to to start us thinking about this, so what can she tell us about how to do philosophy?
3: Well, just first of all, picking on um, you know the, the point of uh, public philosophy that has been raised so far i mean i'm not I'm not very happy with that. I am happy with public philosophy i think I, I am trying to do public philosophy too but um and I think it's every, every you know it's really great for everybody, but I don't think it's a fair thing to say that Midgley's philosophy is a public philosophy versus sort of a proper philosophy, because, you know, the canon, what we would describe the mainstream, uh, you know, philosophy is actually a very recent thing historically. I mean, okay, it's like a hundred years or so. Whereas before that, we had a whole tradition of philosophy that was very much sort of public philosophy, but that was considered to be philosophy proper. So I think that in a way, one of the things that she can teach us about philosophy is that there's not one way of doing philosophy and certainly it's not uh, what we are used to see to seeing now. And of course that was also one of the reasons perhaps that um, she was neglected um, as well as other women in other in other areas, not just philosophy but artists or scientists or, you know, because they tended not to follow this whatever at any time given point was considered the orthodox um, sort of way but um, you know all in all I think we should think that this is a great example the first lesson we can learn is that we should have an open mind about our own discipline what it is to think what it is to do philosophy Um, so yeah that's kind of like the starting point Uh, but for me the the first book I ever read of Mijli was The Owl of Minerva and I was uh, fascinated uh, by it and I really liked that there was this kind of um, first-person perspective when she was talking about philosophy. Of course, can it's a memoir. Us, can you just
0: tell us a bit about that book for those of us who might not have read it?
3: Yeah, this is a memoir. It's like her own sort of her autobiography seen through her own eyes and it tells us everything about her uh, uh, you know her life from childhood to to maturity and the uh, whole book starts with what she says um, she says that every book should start with something that somebody feels comfortable to share and who considers something that one considers valuable important so she tells us um two anecdotes about how she first came across the word philosophy and i don't know if uh, you know, people know about this, but I, I've always thought they were particularly funny and interesting. So the first was uh, that um, when they uh, moved to um, to uh, Greenford, her uh, father was director there, and his uh, her father's predecessor um, was a guy who was considered to be philosophical. So the anecdote is that one day he was um, in his study and he was just looking outside, quietly watching an elm tree, which was um, about to fall, uh, to fall down, either in the direction of the house, his house, or in the opposite direction. And uh, Mr. Swain didn't do anything other than simply look at it, uh, contemplated it, and the tree fell in the opposite direction. So her father said he was very philosophical. And then later on, when she was um, in school, she was uh, being told off uh, because she was not eating her vegetables. And the teacher told her that uh, she needs to be um, philosophical about these matters. So, Midsley allegedly asked, you know, what is to be philosophical? And the teacher said to uh, not to make any fuss, be quiet and eat your vegetables, (laughs) eat your (laughs) cabbage. And on both occasions, um, she thought magic, philosophy is like really strong magic. It can prevent you, like, from, uh, sort of having trees falling on you and, uh, you know, you just eat your vegetables quietly. And I think that, um, this sense of magic is something that, um, characterizes her work as a whole. Not, of course, in the sense that she sat quietly and observed the world without making any fuss. I think she made a lot of fuss. <laughs> but in the sense of the attraction that somebody experiences for, for the subject, the wonder that is involved in, in philosophy, that sense of, you know, discovery and awe. And so I think what she tells us is about, about philosophy is that it, philosophy is about paradox, it's about puzzles, um, it's about dispelling myths, creating perhaps other myths, um, bridging gaps between um, you know sort of us and the world creating multiple um, world pictures and that it is important to think about the world as it is, as important as it is to think about oneself so oneself and the two cannot be done separately um, and so all in all I think the, you know, in her last book as Greg I'm sure is going to say more about um what is philosophy for she finishes that book by saying that um the most important thing that philosophy does is to make us think about these big questions ourselves and think about ourselves ourselves Uh, because if we don't do it for ourselves there's not going to be anybody else who will do it so yeah that's what she taught me about philosophy (laughs)
0: Thank you and, and over to you Greg about philosophy and how we should do it.
1: Um, yeah thank you Yoda's points are well taken there. I think um, maybe a shift from public to practical is a good point here um, to bring about then. Um, she sees philosophy as as, um, as um, certainly important in having this value in itself um, but not necessarily being a luxury, but but a necessity, um, and that it has influence on how we actually live. Um, and so she, and, and this might be something that Ellie wants to say something more about, but she you know, has this um, analogy of philosophy as plumbing, which is pretty well known. Um, and the idea is that there are these thought patterns that kind of underlie um, our lives, much like the plumbing. And typically they kind of run along, patchwork together, but um, we start to notice them. Um, the plumbing and our thought patterns when things go wrong Um, and that typically is because how we think again influences how we live and for Midgley in particular it especially has ramifications in how we treat each other so um, seeing things and especially um, she has real real issues with um, contract thought and this atomistic individualism and she sees that as kind of um, dividing the way that and fragmenting the way that people see their social worlds and influences the way that people see markets and society as a whole um, and also treat each other. Um, and, and we will probably return to that. Um, but and it, it kind of goes across the board into the way that we see animals, into the way that we see the environment, how we apply science, um, how we think about these things and the concepts that kind of underlie and kind of hang together here. Um, underlie these things and hang together. How how those things work actually, they really do matter. And it's not just a um, an issue of pure you know, you know, um, splicing of words to 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 get to you know the technical technical problems underneath these things, but actually you know to dig dig into these concepts and see what type of influence they have on our lives. Um, and so I'll, I'll kind of push that aside for now, to, just to point out that what she's doing very often as well is looking at how these thought patterns. Um, give rise to, and then conversely also influenced by um, what she calls myths, which are these imaginative visions for how we see the world. And these these mythic ways of seeing the world um, kind of give rise to the different arguments, the different ways of seeing the world, uh, the ways of um, kind of uh, conversing about how we should live uh, that make some ways, um, some arguments, some ways of living seem more realistic or convincing than others. And the arguments themselves may be um, one thing, but what she's saying is that this, this, this whole landscape, uh, which she likes to call, what she likes to map, right? She says, we need to map this imaginative landscape um, is really where these, um, where these positions are really embedded. And so she connects not just philosophy with life, but kind of the work of philosophers within these visions themselves, right? Which is pretty important contribution and seeing how the, the wider picture, uh, how we zoom in and zoom out of the wider picture It'd help us to understand kind of our whole kind of thought pattern our ways of thinking and how that how we live um but perhaps ali might
2: have yeah, some things to say yeah you summed that. up super well um yeah i think the philosophical plumbing point um so this is a book that midgley publishes in 1997 and it's sort of a persistent um theme that runs through her work isn't it um Again, she's thinking about these myths. She's thinking about the concepts that run underneath our um, our culture and our society. Um, and Greg picked up on this social atomism, which I'm, I think we'll go on to talk about in a little bit. But that's a really uh, a point which Midgley really wants us to pull. Again, she wants us to see ourselves as um, beings who are social beings, beings who have um, bonds with others in our lives. And this maybe going back to a point you made earlier about the um, the canon and the proper. Proper object of philosophy, as we'd say, um, in the history of philosophy, we're sort of encouraged as philosophers to to work alone in isolation, um, as individuals um, away from our family. Usually, a PhD student is pictured in the room by themselves in isolation, and perhaps um, the the pandemic has has really brought to light that this uh, this myth is quite harmful. Like we do need to live in a society where we can depend on people around us. We are. Uh, as, as Mitchie says, we are social animals. We need, um, we need culture. We need our family. We need our friends. Um, so bringing this back, um, the job of philosophy for Midgley is, is a, um, a shared endeavor. It's something that we need to, we need to like share our, our concepts. We can't just be, um, isolated individuals pulled away. So for Midgley, and um, maybe her domestic life sort of, um, I think really contributes to her idea of what the proper object of philosophy is. So we're not isolated individuals that, um, Sit alone like um Descartes is sort of she's criticizing him quite a lot but he, his his contribution to this canon is the idea that the mind and the world are are separated so um we have reasons and causes and we are very alienated from the world Midgley's philosophy like throughout flies in the face of of that idea of us being alienated and says um no we are we are beings in the world we're in the beings in the natural world but beings in communities and in societies and we really need to um, this is this is really important for philosophy so she has this paper um or actually it's a radio broadcast um called rings and books which never actually goes into print but it's on the in website and i really encourage anyone to go and read it because it's really um it's really easy to read really like classic mutually very witty very very dry but she's um talking about the the canon the proper object of philosophy and she talks a lot about um domestic um Domestic matters and how, just as an example, um, women's experiences haven't been treated as the proper object of philosophy in the canon because um, it's sort of seen as the the debate about um, the fetus is the individual right of the fetus is against the mother and they're two separate isolated individuals and it's never seen as as two uh, two beings or it's never seen as as a, as a mother and a child or Midgley um, kind of talks a lot about um, how. The woman see at the beginning, at the beginning of the pregnancy, it might be seen as an ailment, but at five months, six months, um, it's seen as a child. And it's, she's sort of reflecting on the fact that this is really important for philosophy and this sort of phenomena can't be overlooked just because, um, the canon of philosophy wants us to separate them. So that's a very roundabout way of, um, answering the question. But, um, yeah, I think her, her view of us being situated animals is really important as well to get onto later on, I think.
4: I'm jumping in for Danielle because she seems to have dropped off as our chair. Um, I'm Beth Hannon i the director of the forum so I'm temporarily Danielle. Um, uh, so that's very interesting. I'm going to use this opportunity to turn to some of the questions from the audience that we've had so far um, and uh, I think maybe talking about how Mitchley has been sidelined this is a good point to turn to a quest, an issue raised by Martin Midgley who is Mary's son, um, and uh, she felt, he says, that she was sidelined largely because she was working outside of Oxford. Um, uh, I wonder what you thought about that, and maybe comparing her to someone like Honora O'Neill, who also worked quite a lot in the public realm in philosophy. Does anyone want to find,
2: fill that question? Um, sorry, can you just repeat the beginning of the question? Is it? Did
4: you say Oxford? Yeah, that she was maybe excluded. She'd been excluded historically from mainstream discussions of academic philosophy yeah. because of her position outside of Oxford.
2: Yeah, so because
4: yeah, you have Newcastle, right?
2: Of course, yeah. So initially, um, just to give people a bit of context, she left Oxford after she graduated. They all went to Somerville College. Um, and she took a bit of an unusual career path for an academic philosopher. She left and she had children and she had a um, a domestic life. A, she took care of her kids. She brought them all up um, before she started, as Greg said, before she started publishing. So she moved up north. She was a lecturer at Reading for a little bit. Um, but then she lectured at Newcastle um, with her husband uh, until the mid-1960s. Um, so I would say, unlike, uh, I've been looking at a lot of Philippa Foote recently as well, who had a much more of a typical philosopher's academic career, so she published like a steady stream of articles, she got into debates with RM Hare, who became a very, um, who's a, one of the um, famous philosophers around that time. Um, so I think that definitely did contribute to her neglect, the fact that she might have spent her life further up north and stuff was going on in Oxford, um, which was then seen as a more prestigious place to do your uh, philosophy degree. Um yeah, I think that's definitely contributed to her neglect, but definitely shouldn't have.
4: Do you think that that's a problem that persists
2: today in academic
4: philosophy? Do you think that someone um, anonymously would struggle to emerge under these, the same kinds of conditions?
1: I think it's likely, I would say. Um, <laughs> um, especially... You know, kind of bursting into the scene or into the scene um, at, at almost 60 is, is um, a great thing, uh, but not especially common. And um, I, I think and just just to kind of um, add to a little bit of what Ellie was saying, I think that she uh, speaking with her over the years. She saw what was going on at Oxford as um Oxbridge right as somewhat stifling um, she saw the issues that were being covered as you know interesting but but very technical and increasingly n- narrow in relation to what she wanted to, to talk about so she while she was at Newcastle had the opportunity to kind of pull back focus on teaching uh, which she by all accounts seemed to really enjoy um, which I think many of us can relate to now being, um, you know, with our teaching loads, um, it's sometimes it's hard to kind of really break into some of the areas that we might be um, interested in. Um, but also she was able to pursue this, especially this interest in human nature and animals and just really delve into you know animal studies, ethology, in ways that weren't, um, probably wouldn't have been open to others. And she talked about how um, you know, in interactions with, especially like Philippa Foot over the years, you know, they would, they would meet and talk about things and Philippa would be talking about this and this and this uh, particular, what you would call the the Oxford orthodoxy. And, um, you know, eventually would would talk about human nature and this or that issue. And and, and she, she would mention how, you know, Foot would just kind of be like, hey, why are you talking about that? You know, just kind of, that's just, that's not what we're doing right now. So um, I think it's a combination of things that you know, led to her eventual, um, you know, arrival in a way that people were very receptive to, um, and and that combination and and that ability for people to get their voice out there on a topic that people see as relevant, I think, is always there. Um, and maybe there are more venues to do that now, which is which is a good thing mm-hmm. in some ways, but also not in some other ways, um, as we probably all realize on Twitter. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that it's always it. Yeah, philosophy is hard to be heard in, period. So,
3: <laughs> But I think there's an issue of uh, motivation as well. I mean, what interests somebody? So I, I suppose mm-hmm. that if Midgley wanted to, to have a, an academic career in the sense that we understand it now, I'm sure she would have been able, to, I believe she would have been able to do that. But it seems that there's always a combination between um, not having this motive and not achieving it at the same time, because, you know, what was available, what was the path that she should have taken if she wanted to become um, an academic professor, uh, would, I think, um, involve a compromise that uh, she wasn't ready to make because she had a different vision, you know, a different aim, Um to, to pursue and that's that 's not uncommon. I mean I have been very privileged in my life to have uh, to have had teachers that are exactly like Midley, although I never met unfortunately Mitley herself, but my first professor in Greece, um, who is a, a, a very prolific author, just like Mary was, um, has never had a proper academic post in Greece um, because you know he started in some way then he saw that this was not exactly the uh, what he wanted to do in his life and he had a very strong vision a very strong plan of what he wanted to do in life very similar to what to what misley uh, did on the other hand you know i can also mention my supervisor in liverpool my phd supervisor who was very unlike uh, mary's phd supervisor <laughs> um in terms of accessibility professor stephen clark who has been an incredible influence on me, a source of inspiration and a gu- and guide uh, throughout my life and um, my academic life. And I think, you know, there are a lot of similarities again between him and misley in the themes that they are uh, examining and also um, the way they're approaching those topics. But in Stephen's case, you know, he was more, he was. More male, I suppose, um, and more um at ease with following um some of the traditional routes, but this doesn't mean that he is not also a revolutionary, like you know, sure. And the bottom line is that whatever whatever you choose to do, if it's not part of a um pre-designed path requires a lot of exposure. Philosophy requires a lot of exposure. That's, uh, I think she mentioned, is one of the fears of philosophers. And I think we've all experienced that, um, you know, what it means to, to be exposed. Not so much um, to the danger of uh, being at fault with our arguments, but of being uh, criticized, you know, for our, um, for our vision, for our aims, for our desires, um,
2: yeah um, I would just jump in here quickly if that's okay just to say I think also when we're thinking about Midgley's work it's not a bad thing necessarily that she waited her whole life to publish like she says on a radio broadcast I think where she says oh um, I'm, I'm glad that I did wait because I didn't know what I thought before then um, mm-hmm. and so she started publishing when she was 60 and then you have this body of work as Greg said at the very beginning 200 books and pamphlets and leaflets and radio broadcast like she's on women's hour she's on the moral maze um but it's all so holistic like you read beast and man which she published in 1978 all the way through to why philosophy what's philosophy for 2018 and it's almost like the themes run all the way through all of her work and i've never read a philosopher who who is so consistent and holistic and has this vision of philosophy that's really unlike um, she doesn't ever do any U-turns. Like you get this quite a lot in philosophy, like it happened to Philip Her Foot, where they turn around and they say, Oh, I was I was wrong about this in the middle of their career. So you have like all Wittgenstein, early Wittgenstein, late Wittgenstein. Literally is um just very clear in what she and what she wants. And I think that's actually a, a really good thing. And maybe it's not a typical philosophical career, um, but it's definitely uh to be praised. Wonderful. And maybe we could move on from talking about her life and career to some
4: of her actual ideas um, and uh, I'm thinking about what she wrote about the nature of the self and the role of the human. I thought maybe you could take that one and then I'll step away.
0: Thank you Beth, sorry everybody I had a complete disaster with my wi-fi and I'm now tethered to my phone so fingers crossed this will hold out. Um, what did I miss?
1: Solved it. <laughs>
2: we're just going to talk about the self i think um mutually in the self
0: do you want to kick us off ellie
2: um i actually think that the should kick us off with this one because this isn't my clear area of expertise i think
3: There's historically we're going to take it historically <laughs> so i uh um yeah of course she has a lot of things to say about the self and, and the world but um I want to um, sort of talk a little bit about her first steps that I came to uh, to know fairly recently. Um, and this is, you know, when she started doing uh, her PhD that you mentioned on Plotinus, which she never finished. Um, it was in 1947, I think. Um, and she stayed in Oxford about a year um, and she did some some work there and um I also did my PhD um, on Plotinus and his Doctrine of the Soul. And so when I met uh, Rachel Wiseman, who is uh, my colleague and uh, mutual friend, she told Mary about it. And um, then Mitch Lee agreed to hand over to me um, the archive. She had like a box with everything she had done during that year. And so Rachel came to my office like bearing gifts uh, and later on, I met uh, also David, uh, David Mitchley, who was very kind and, um, you know, sort of uh, gave me some insight into that material, and how um, Mitchley related to it. Because I have to say the question that was on my mind, basically, when that was given to me was, um, why, why read it? And are we allowed to do anything with it? Uh, a kind of student work that she never published herself, although she published so many, so many other things. And most, inter- more interestingly, she never returned to that work. She hasn't, I don't think she ever read Plotinus um, ever again. She. Uh, I, I was able to find only two references to Plotinus in her whole uh, corpus. And in fact, the, the second one is only an indirect reference to somebody else who comments on Plutinus. So it I is think interesting. that tells
4: us
0: everything we need to know about the process of doing a PhD <laughs> and how traumatic it can be.
3: Yeah, like, like, I mean, I think from a, um, from the point of view of philosophy we are talking about before, it's very interesting because it shows you that there are so many paths in life and you can develop in so many different ways, whereas kids, even my, do- my daughter's age, she's 13, feel that they have to have a trajectory like from from primary school all the way to I don't know retirement and it's like the same linear kind of process but the the mind and our life doesn't develop in those ways so it's interesting to see that but um, also I think it's it's also interesting to see whether I mean she mentioned at some point that she had uh, in one of her interviews that um, in her life, there were a lot of missed opportunities and um, her study on Plotinus was one of those. So um, I wanted to really see whether it was a missed opportunity or whether, despite evidence to the contrary, um, it found its way within her development and her work, uh, perhaps not consciously, but um, and I think it has you know there are a lot of she respected Plotinus very much. she considers him um, a very important philosophy philosopher that should be read and I think reading uh, the material that exists, there is a lot of notes, uh, but there are also four um, extensive essays, all of which deal with um, the self one way or another. And I think that this is in retrospect, one could recognize in these writings the beginnings of a lot of theories and views that she fully developed and articulated much later. For example, the idea of um, a, a u- the unity between uh, the human being, the self and the world um how we deal with conflicts like conflicts the mind and body body sort of opposition or between perception or emotion and reason. Um, you know, these very big sort of dichotomies and conflicts that we experience usually as happening outside of us. She credits Plotinus with this move of transposing these debates into the self. In a way, much more uh, radical than Plato did before him. And um, she sees in Plotinus uh, the beginnings of um, the inner world and what it would mean to see things from sort of inside out, as it were. And I think that's, that's a very important thing that um, one could detect in, in her reading of, of Plotinus. And then it makes it's also very important for Plotinian studies, because, of course, when Midgley started working on Plotinus, there was no translation of Plotinus into English. There were a few French, perhaps, translations, but primarily she was working from the ancient Greek text. It was a very hip Uh, exotic subject to to work on. But strangely enough, that was the case 25 years later that I started. um, Well, we had more translations, but it was still considered to be a very marginal um, marginal uh, topic. So it is interesting to see how uh, Midgley's interpretation of Plutinus is actually interpretation very much informed by her own view. And it may not be as scholarly or, or rigid as it was expected, like for the PhD. But now that we know Midgley as a philosopher, we may appreciate this interpretation, which is to a certain extent also a misinterpretation. But that's how history of philosophy develops through misunderstandings sometimes. <laughs> but it is very important be- because it is a way of approaching Plotinus and um Finding out what, what is important to, to, to see. I mean, she's not just putting forward a new interpretation, but a better interpretation in the sense that it, it's telling us something that she's tried to tell us even so early on. So sorry, this took a bit of time, but, um, it's really fascinating for me. I've never done it before to look, to look through somebody's notes and, um, reconstruct everything from this tiny bit.
0: Thanks, Yotta. I wonder whether uh, Ellie and, and Greg want to pick up on this as well in terms of the way that these ideas then feed into her later work on on the self and the role of the self within, within the world more generally. Greg?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to kind of process a little bit of that because this is, is again, new, this is new stuff. Um, so I'd be curious to see and hear more about that at some point um, uh, the the thing that stands out to, when when you you think of Mitchley and her her notion of like humans as animals and this very kind of um, integrated approach and in, in her continuity with nature um, uh, it and, and she she tends to be very uh, in just her wider position of uh, kind of a more ag- agnostic approach to things in general as far as the universe goes. I mean, Pl- Plotinus isn't the first thing I I think at least with the very little that I know of Plotinus, it's, it's not the first thing I think of. But I I, I see those connections with like the uh, the notion of unity, the oneness, right? I mean, I don't, but it, I don't know if that's along the lines of where she's taking that in a different way than than how Plotinus did it. And I don't I don't know the technical details there, but. Um, the way that she's, I mean, others have talked, even Russell and at some point in later years talked about kind of this notion of integration and how we become fragmented and disintegrated and how there's, there's we, one of the real motives that we have is some type of effort to bring together all these various aspects of ourselves into some type of unity. And, and it's never final, it's a kind of messy and it's really kind of painful process in a lot of ways, but we do kind of need something like that and it contributes to our views on morality and how that developed and things like that. Um, so, so I can see that. And also that connection of, of humans with the, um, with not just animals, but larger collectives, including like the biosphere as a whole. And I can see all a notion like Gaia might fit in here with that unity, right? There's just kind of this notion of a larger, um, collective in which everything makes sense and which everything is part of, um, that she was really drawn to. And so that's interesting to kind of hear some of those potential connections there. Um, and we might cycle back around to some of those, but, but I do see some, some interesting things there that, um, that I'd love to, yeah, like I said, say for another time.
2: Ellie? Um, I'm possibly similar area of expertise as with Greg, where I'm um, not 100% clear on Plotinus, but um, I can say a bit about the idea of unity in the self and how it relates to um, how her, her views on non-human animals. Um, so as, as um, Anyone familiar with Midgley would know, her very famous beginning to Beast of Man is that um, we're not just rather like animals, we are animals. And though this might seem like a really simple thing to say or like really uncontroversial, in the history of philosophy she's pulling against the view that humans are sort of in this imperial isolated position with this amazing thing called reason. Um, so I think Midgley's view of the integrated self is really good in just bringing Um, that view of, of the amazing thing called reason that sets us apart from nature just really into context. So Mitchellie looks at our ability to integrate, um, as, as non-human animals. So we have all these conflicting motives. Um, and our ability to reason just makes this conflict, conflict worse because we can see all these different conflicting motives, um, conflicting desires. We can't decide what to do. We can't decide when to go to the shop. We can't decide when to finish work, whatever. All these sort of things. Um, we have conflicting desires. So, um, the, the notion of integration is basically this um, natural desire, this natural norm that human beings have to, as Greg says, have like a continuous self, have a integrated self. And this is not just in intelligent mammals such as human beings, it's intelligent, ma- other intelligent mammals that we share the biosphere with. Um, so this like need for an integrated self, like we're not the only ones that suffer com- from conflict. And I think this, this notion of the, of the self, um, yeah, really brings humans, and non-human animals on like a uh yeah, on like a level playing field, which for Mitchell is really important for how she starts off her whole, I would argue her whole um, philosophical outlook might start from the premise of we are, we are animals. We are not just, um, we are non-human animals. We're not just like them. We are structurally similar to them. We share instincts. She has this amazing theory of instincts, which I don't think has been looked at properly, but she has this. Um, I think that again is a really important structure, which can bring human beings back down to, um, back down to earth.
0: Thanks. And just to follow up on that, Ellie, can you tell us a little bit more about her views on reason and the role of reason?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, for Midgley, she looks a lot in this chapter, middle chapter of Beast and Man, um, which I think is the core of that book, um, On Being Human as well as Rational, aptly named. Um, On Being Human, On Being Animal as well as Rational Human. So here she kind of of brings reason and feeling, which in the history of philosophy have been um, kind of, put into dichotomy, put into contrast with one another, especially through um, thinkers like Kant, um, who just wants us to be purely rational beings. Um, So Mitchley claims that feeling has, um, educates and informs our decisions and our actions and our thoughts just as much as reason does. so although we have this thing called reason for Midgley, we need to look at all the other faculties, um, which, which make our form of life as human beings. Um, so reason isn't looked in like glorious isolation from all the other faculties that we have. And yeah, she wants to, um, basically look at us as, as human beings she wants to study us as animals of like absorbing interest just like any other animal and this um, ability of us to reason is just one of our other faculties amongst lots of other she still claims it's important she doesn't want to say to us like reason's not important um obviously it's important um but um it's sort of more of a tool of us to organize our um our motives and our um yeah thoughts and feelings
0: thanks ellie and perhaps we can come back to, to you gregon, and, and you, you said that You know, the work that Mitchley was doing about non-human life in the 80s sort of preceded this this big turn in sort of environmental thought and animal studies that we've seen in the last sort of 10, 15 years. Can you give us a sense of what she was saying and doing um, that that felt so provocative and challenging at the time?
1: Yes. Um, So, you know, in the early 80s, we're, we're coming out of this period where there's the kind of burgeoning interest in environmental and animal ethics. Um, you know, and and you have a range of perspectives there ranging from ecological holism, kind of on one side, looking at things in these broad collectives, um, and on the other side, a more more typically individualist approach, rights-based approach, um, utilitarian approaches uh, that focus on things like sentience and um, interests and the intrinsic value um, of animals and things like this. Um, And then on the other end, the holist side, looking at things like um, the, the value of of ecosystems and, and the relations of individuals to the holes and how species and things like this matter so there's a lot going on but it's kind of a bit disjointed and there might there seem to be some various camps but especially in the animals camp um when most of the emphasis is on things like um, distinctions between rights and um, interests mentally you know looks at this and sees that all is important um and 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 part of the part of the picture but in her famous book animals and why they matter she's trying to put more context on the why animals matter um in a a more expansive way and and yes the attention on on the um on the value of of animals in this kind of um utilitarian and rights-based approach um is, is important but what it's leaving out is what she thinks some of the most important aspects of um of why animals matter, which is that they're, um, they're part of the are a community. They're part of something like a mixed human animal community that has arisen in the same context, the same kind of natural context. Um, and so when she talks about things like the mixed community, it, it's kind of this larger sense of, of human animal continuity with nature and how um, it, uh, we have always lived amongst animals, um, our languages, our, our language, our concepts, our values, have, have kind of um, have, have risen, but also have given, have, have kind of developed their content in the context of these mixed human animal communities. Um, so, and this is, can be pretty broad and abstract in the sense that we've always lived amongst animals. Um, and that can kind of point toward that, that continuity with, with animals as a whole, but also it can kind of boil down and, and zoom into more concrete communities in which humans have always lived in um, close relations, not just um, in an abstract sense, but but even a mode of emotional relationships with animals, uh, much like we've lived with other humans. And so, what she what she does is draw attention to animal subjectivity, um, their social lives, um, their relations with each other, but also our relations with them. And how, if we think of community as something, especially human community as something important, as entailing uh, thing, entailing sets of obligations and claims that arise amongst a community, um, we should probably also be thinking about animals as part of that community as well. And once you start going down that road, you can also go a couple more steps and see how we're kind of part of this larger um, natural community, this life community, and that's where you know she'll invoke things like Gaia. Um, and so this kind of relational thread, this kind of relational and holistic thread that she has early in the 80s, really some see that as tying together kind of the, uh, the dual interests that are developing at the time in animals and the environment and kind of this kind of um, comprehensive approach that she has of seeing us in this kind of um, this, um, these communities of importance. Um, and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bog it down too much and get to through technical there, um, but then she starts to then um, yeah I don't, wanna, I don't want to I don't want to to go too far but she, she she talks about how claims on behalf of various entities both uh, animals individual animals but also collectives can actually coalesce when we think in these more relational and communitarian approaches which shifts things. From looking like purely utilitarian or rights based approaches to perhaps a more, she thinks, more pra- pragmatic and pluralistic approach to how values are worked out and adjudicated within communities. Um, and people notice this, um, and then uh, perhaps in better and worse ways, and then things kind of went a different direction. And I think recently it's come back around that this um, emphasis that been t- has been taken up by um, ecofeminists and care ethicists um, approaching things like subjectivity relationality, um, empathy, and sympathy toward others has become um, recognized as really important and um, seeing why animals matter in context, rather than this very abstract sense of like, you know, bearers of rights or something like this. Um, so I think I'll leave, leave it like that because might get a little too inside baseball there, but, um, but I get pretty excited about it, honestly, that.
0: Thank, thanks very much, Greg. I want to ask a sort of related but slightly separate question, which is about um science. And and clearly what you're saying is is that part of her discussion of these issues of of animal subjectivity, human-animal relations, and also environmental thought more broadly did engage with scientific material. Can you say, um, perhaps you or perhaps Ellie, say a little bit more about her use of the sciences, and her perceptions, I guess, of the limitations of the sciences as well?
2: Um, Um, (laughs) I I can go broadly. (laughs) Um, So yeah, Lee has a lot of philosophy of science. Um, Ian James Kidd writes about this quite a lot in one of the great collections of essays um, called Science and the Self. Um, But I will try and do justice to what he says. Essentially, Midgley, um, she is not um, against science. She claims that we need science, that science can inform us, um, but science needs to be used in the right way. And she basically claims that science to some extent in the 20th century has been used as a a religion. It's seen as something people ascribe um, too much truth to, or not too much truth, but too much weight to the scientific scientific, um, opinion um and it has become maybe one of these myths which we spoke about a little bit at the beginning and um, mary's philosophy is a lot to do she might be called a myth buster where she claims that when an idea becomes overgrown or damaging we need to use philosophy to kind of pull it back and remind ourselves that it's not the all the all and end all so essentially her view of um, science is that sometimes um scientism she calls it um becomes overbearing and um to our to our thinking. So Midgley's philosophy, if I can just say um, maybe slightly a little bit off topic, but she, um, I, was, I think she's an ethical naturalist and she doesn't just want to be a scientific naturalist, which is basically the view that we can explain all of morals and all of normativity through um, the, uh, the strictly modern sciences of so physics, biology and chemistry. Midgley wants to claim that we can explain um, natural norms, we can explain morality through um, many more sciences, not just the strict sciences, which she is that's what her criticism is against. She claims we can draw again on lots of different disciplines and we should draw on different disciplines. Um, she's a big ethologist. Um, so she really wants us to look into, um, I mean, Beast of Man is full of these amazing examples. Um, like almost re- reading off David Attenborough's script, like she's incredible. She describes these uh, animal life, she's all embedded in that. Um, uh, yeah, so she's claiming that we need to draw on lots of different disciplines and we can't just have... Um, science dominating everything. So she wants to draw, especially as well, really interestingly on poetry, which maybe we can go on to in a little bit, but that's a really important part of her philosophy is that we should look at the arts of poetry, literature, uh, and that can inform um, our worldview and the way that we we look at things. And that can give us different ways of looking at reality, like science, for Midgley, is just one window into what she calls the, the aquarium. She has this, again, a lasting analogy that goes through quite a lot of her books where she claims that we just have one way of looking at the world. And if we only look at, through one window, we only see one small part of the aquarium. But we need to walk around and look at the, the aquarium from the other side. We might see some different fish or shark in some a different place and get a different perspective. So essentially she's saying that science is a good thing and is a way of discovering the world and it's good. Empirical science is important. She's really she is an empirical and a, an Aristotelian, like she's a biologist, but um, she wants us to claim that the well she wants to claim there's lots of different ways of seeing the world. Um, I think her point about art and poetry is really interesting. Maybe we can talk about that that more in in a bit, but she's, this is another way of us seeing reality. Um, We have a limited perspective, and that's just that our place as human beings, as biological creatures, and poetry and art allow us to see perspectives of different people or different stories or different ways of seeing the world. And so, yes, that's a very long way of answering your question, but science is, um, one perspective and one that is important and contributes but one that shouldn't overtake all the other perspectives.
0: Thanks very much Ali, I wondered if you wanted to pick up on this Yotta, the the role the that kind of narratives um, play in determining our worldviews.
3: Yeah I was thinking as I think Craig mentioned um, the Gaia hypothesis um, in the context of um, her view about the about animals and um, the environment and You know, it always surprises me how um, generations, our generation, of course, um, come up with some ideas and we think they're new and they're not that new. I mean, um, so the Gaia hypothesis, i.e. the view that um, the the worlds of the living beings and the inanimate beings are part of a a single whole, um, a self-regulating whole, um, that also... In the human being is not sort of on the on the summit, the, the top of a pyramid, of hierarchical pyramid, but is very much part of that system, and has a, a moral obligation towards the world. Um, is not something that came up um, in in that context. I mean, it's a very old idea, starting from uh, Plato's uh, Timaeus and then going on to the, the Stoics. And then to Plotinus and various others, and so it's it's about thinking that the world is alive. And Midgley characteristically starts her PhD um, sort of discussions from the uh, microcosm macrocosm metaphor, which also touches upon exactly your question, Danielle: how this kind of metaphorical narratives, quasi epistemological, uh, scientific, quasi sort of uh, poetry, um, are exactly the, the place where one can start exercising one's imagination and sort of seeing things, as Ellie said, from, from different perspectives. So within the macrocosm-microcosm sort of analogy, what is strange is that um, each part of this macro world is also a world in itself. So, you know, Blue Dynamics would say that each one of us as a human being is a small universe, but we are part of a universe as well. So anyway, this has interesting also political uh, kind of connotations, if you like, but for the purposes of, of ecology and our place in the world i think it's a very interesting exercise to see how these two relate and if you really make say each part of a whole also a whole and also give that part which is a human being a moral duty towards towards the whole and the bigger whole then i think you start seeing the importance of um you know, ecology and sort of animal rights and all these things, um, within that context. And I think it's, 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 it's very important to do that, um, in Midgley, but more generally. So I think, yeah, that's a very good, uh, metaphor. Um, not a myth, as Eli mentioned, sort of a dangerous myth, but it's a very good image, uh, to, to meditate on.
0: Thanks Yotta. I want to fit in some some audience questions now, I know you've had some already but we've got lots of interesting ones, it's a question from Verity Burt um, about Midgley's kind of current influence on 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 things on scholarship and new materialism for example, so things like um, Donna Haraway, Jane Bennett, I mean when you were talking I was thinking about ideas of entanglement and relationality, um, do you want to maybe comment Greg or Ellie on, on that influence at all?
1: I can say a little bit, I mean, I, I see it. Um, I know there's been, I think this might be one of the areas where I, I've spoken at um, conferences or whatever, and people have um, cycled back around to the question that came up earlier of, um, you know, why, why do we not hear more about Midgley in certain fields? Um, because she seems to be have her fingerprints all over some of these areas, um, as I was mentioning, still kind of coming down from that animal question a minute ago. got pretty excited about that, but um, that in particular, right the animal area um, and, and other areas where yeah there, there are more a movement a push pushing away from kind of more liberal individualist approaches towards more relational approaches. Um, and how that how that might manifest in different fields, especially uh, as I mentioned, ecofeminism and, and care ethics, um, but also others. Um, and I think you will often see, um, you know, references to Mitchell. You'll see often not a often a dwelling, but but she's on people's radars. I think um, very often in these areas, um, I think her influence is there and can probably be seen. And you see her um, featuring in the work of. Um, Let's say someone like Val Plumwood, um, and, and you'll see just the appropriate, you know, kind of um, nod here and there, um, but perhaps not in an especially heavy way. So um, I think I think she's there. I think she's, and you can hear echoes of Midgley And sometimes you you you're reading something and you, you flip to the bibliography or the notes and you're like, uh, is there a Midgley reference here? Because this sounds a lot like her. Um, but you don't you don't see it as much as you, you might think. You know, so so maybe Ellie.
2: Um, I think I can definitely empathise with what you say with um, thinking that you're reading midgly and you're not reading midgly. I think it happens a lot um, with the environmental discussions. Um, I was listening to the radio on on Monday and uh, it was ter- Sir Tim Scat, I think, from the um, Eden project. And he was talking about Um, how the need for um, a natural history GCSE and how we need to get children out into environments. And some of the sentences he was saying were just so um, unbelievably like Midgleyan. I even went and Googled him and checked if he had done any philosophy or any of that kind of thing because it just really sounded like him, uh, about her even. Um, So yeah, I think uh, undercurrents of her thought do come up. But again, maybe this is what the importance of a webinar like this is to say um, her philosophy is Really important not just in other areas of philosophy but also practically um in politics in um the way that we think about society and the way that we educate our children and the importance of the natural world again speaking about the Gaia, like jota was saying um and i think a comment's gone on here from david mitchell talking about how the gaia is um is a is a myth that mitchell wants it's but it's an important myth a myth that we need to um maybe tell our children and the next generation coming through we need to have more of a Um, a sort of Midgleyan outlook on the environment, I think.
0: Thanks, Ellie. Um, I have another question from Eric L. Peterson about um, holistic criticisms of holistic philosophy of biology. So one of the criticisms of holistic philosophy is the idea that it tries to smuggle in a more or less traditional religious sentiment. Is there a way to defend Midgley from this charge of sort of crypto religious philosophy?
1: I I can probably I can try to tackle that. I've talked to Midgley about this. Um and she has always she's she's been favorable toward more organicist visions of nature because they're direct counters to this more mechanistic Cartesian view. And she sees a whole range of probably allied attempts to bring about organic visions as being useful and the the guy one I think is one that was ready at hand, right? It's just it's just kind of there. It, vivid it touches on all the features of what makes myths um, significant and so it is a counter myth right um, versus more atomistic mechanistic approach um but she sees it as a as a as a myth or you know something along these lines um a useful myth she's used the terminology of a useful myth which sounds a bit like Plato right um but she herself is um you know, as she doesn't see it as something to be um Worshipped or personified, and she thinks that much of the resistance to Gaia is often, um, you know, there. Are, there are reasons, and she understands that. She sees some of the resistance being um, kind of, uh, gendered, um, some of the language um, along those lines, but also the personification and the perception that this isn't um, it, this isn't in step with some scientific pictures of the way that systems work, but is more so. Um, um, you know, a religious personification or something along those lines. And she does resist that. She resists the personification and the um, dramatization that can come from that type of vision. So, I mean, I think she can be defended um, in those ways in the sense that that's not what she's trying to smuggle in. She's not religious in that sense. Um, uh, she sees it as again, a, a countervailing myth as opposed to a um, some type of unifying religious force. But if it can in some way bring about better action, better treatment of the way that we interact with the world, I think she sees that as a positive thing, but that, and that again is how it is fulfilling the role rather than um, be, being elevated to something as a, a religious um, thing to be, again, idolized, worship, praise, personified, um, and, and that goes across the board for religions, as she's, you know, regularly noted as fairly agnostic in her position overall towards um, toward religion.
0: Thanks, Greg. We've had lots of questions about crisis, so questions about Midgley's work and um, the ways it might speak to the current climate crisis, the degradation of the environment. There's another question about um, COVID nineteen and what it tells us about human. Nature and our relationships with animals and the environment. And um, perhaps we could kind of group those together. What, what can how can her work help us to respond to some of these moments of, of crisis that we're experiencing? So Ellie or Yotta?
2: Um, I can tackle the environment question. Um, Mitchley is an environmental philosopher. Um, she's she's really ahead of her time there in this. Um uh, in in one of her books, she she uses the phrase um the bad news is our house is on fire, which has obviously become like a really famous global renowned um, theme that Greta Thunberg talks about. Um, But Majority's philosophy is really important, uh, environmental philosophy, Um, I have a quote here from her actually, Um, this is in her book Science and Poetry, she claims, we did not expect the earth to be vulnerable, capable of health or sickness, wholeness or injury, but it turns out that we were wrong, the earth is now unmistakably sick. so I think Mitchley's environmental philosophy, um, and as I was saying earlier about, um, how we teach our children about how to treat, um, treat the environment, um, this also links into, uh, the COVID-19 crisis. Like it's been quite a phenomenon that people who have gardens, people who have balconies are much better well off and much, um, are coping really better than people who don't. Like people are seeking, um, the environment they're seeking green spaces um and this has been something that has really been brought to light by the pandemic because we've had this curtailed, we've been forced to stay inside we've not been able to go outside so Midgeley talks about the idea of having like um or in reverence for the natural world but this isn't in like a romantic way like obviously the, the pandemic's been awful and um it's it's easy for enough for us to sit here and say oh we should have all for the natural world um but i don't think this is such a like hippie romantic notion like i think she's sort of saying that we need to place ourselves back into the natural world and again get rid of this like um, this myth it feeds back into the idea of this this myth of the the atomized individual we need to put ourselves back into the natural world um because the the worrying thing is like if, if the next generation comes through and they feel themselves being alien from the natural world um there's no way we're going to solve the environmental crisis so this guy a myth is is a useful myth as as greg says and it, it's something that definitely the pandemic has brought to light um
0: Thank you, Yotta. I wondered if you wanted to come in and, and talk a little bit about Midgley's use in times of crisis.
3: Well, obviously, there is an environmental crisis that is getting really very serious, and it's we really need to do something about that. but I think that what we should understand is that the environmental crisis again, you know, in the context of what we were saying before, it's not just something happening to the environment which is sort of out there, but it is also uh, an intellectual crisis that we are experiencing and I don't think that it is possible to find any solution or any treatment to the environmental crisis if we don't address it also in the context of our intellectual crisis, because the two things go together and the that which unites them is morality. So, um, you know, at moments of crisis, you know, as Ellie mentioned very, very early, early on in the in the discussion, like, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic we're experiencing, we sort of reappreciate uh, primarily v- value. And I think these ideas that are central in the uh, Gaia hypothesis, but more generally into sort of Midgley's work and her stand. Um, Her take on evolution, for example, is that um, ideas like cooperation and uh, love and friendship and um, altruism are very, very important and they are not in competition to um, evolution, but they are very important parts of it.
0: I think that's a really positive way to finish. I can see it's
3: 1914. Um,
0: I'm sorry we haven't been able to get through everybody's questions. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to all of our speakers for joining us. Um, Do come in two weeks when we are talking about philosophy and science fiction. Thank you. Bye bye.